So obviously want to talk about the new tune and video and management and the acronym BIAS and where did that come from? Who created Breaking In A Sequence? Yeah, so hey, this is Rich. There's like some rappers named Bias. There's other bands in other countries named Bias. And, you know, with politics and everything, if you just Google Bias, it's like really hard to find us. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so we figured uh, we should probably rebrand a little bit because people were having an issue finding us on uh, the streaming platforms, you know, with the inner punk in the middle that got. So we decided, hey, let's still be biased, but let's acronym it. Right. I kind of did my homework and I, I, I made a note and I went through and I started trying to figure out, hey, what, what would be really cool to acronym this as? And I was thinking as in like code, you know, so sequence of codes, mm. uh, like, you know, development code programming. And I was like, hey, how about breaking into us in a sequence? Right. Because that's kind of like what like viruses do computer viruses is breaking into that sequence of code and inputting its own thing. And so uh, I brought that to the guys and the guys were like, hey, that actually sounds really cool. That's that's a great idea. Let's let's do that. So in turn, that makes us a lot more unique, you know, and it's it's going to be a lot easier to find us now moving forward. I love it. And and a great story behind it. I wasn't sure if you guys all like had homework and, and had to come up with a like, list of names and then went through it. But really cool that, Rich, you did the whole thing. Yeah, for the most. I mean, we, we were all da- we were dabbling with other ways to acronym it and do whatever but this one actually made sense and especially with rich's version of it this is joe by the way but with rich's version of uh with breaking in a sequence and it being with code and just kind of how the world is today in general i think it, it just kind of you know kind of fell into place and seemed right i love it and i certainly love uh, you know kudos to you guys incredible job on the cover and the video for midlife crisis and who threw out that one and thank god you guys didn't cover epic but who who decided to pick uh midlife <laughs> crisis out of the uh, faith no more catalog kind of a mutual decision this is chris by the way it's kind of a mutual decision we were all uh driving and on tour and heard the live version like rich is like i could sing this so we're like was it the live version yeah that's what everybody uh i don't think it was i can sing this it was more like we were driving in the middle of nowhere the live version came on i'm like live this has so much energy and i was yeah. like i think we could do this i think yeah. we could pull this off yeah. that's how it went not like oh i could <laughs> sing this well, to, it's mike Patton. Yeah. like <laughs> i mean to be honest once we heard rich and we were getting down to the you know nitty-gritty of making sure that he was going to be our singer he always kind of reminded us of Patton and from basically day one I think I said that I would love to do this song and uh, we listened to it and the original version is a little bit slower from the video nobody was really feeling it but when we were on tour and uh, you know we would we would just put faith no more on while we were you know driving through the middle of nowhere and we heard a live version of it which was a little faster and uh, a little bit heavier and a little bit more energy and now I think that was like the time that Rich finally said, you know what, maybe this is something that we could do. Yeah, I was totally against it in the beginning, like two years ago when I first joined the band. <laughs> I was at Disneyland and Joe texted me, hey, we should do a Faith No More cover. I'm like, nope. <laughs> Absolutely not. And then you came around to it after hearing that live version. Yeah, because there was a different energy to it. It felt different. And honestly, when I first heard it, like I heard it in a way that I knew we could put our own spin on it, but stay true to the original. You know what I mean? If that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. You could you could uh, bias size it a little bit. Yeah, 
put, yeah, your, put your own exactly. flavor. Talk about making the uh, the video. I mean, it was certainly in paying homage to the original video in your video of it. But talk about how long it took to make and during the pandemic. Uh, did you get it all done in one day? Where did you film it? Break it down. 45 long days. No. <laughs> <laughs> We're only around each other for an hour a day, so it's 45 days. <laughs> so it, it, that video, um, it, came, it came together pretty quickly. I want to say it took us about a month to plan it all. Um, we shot it on a soundstage that we found in, what, downtown, downtown L.A. or something like Skid that? Row. It was like Skid Row, pretty much, in this uh, warehouse, which was cool. And we filmed it with Matt Zane, and Matt did an incredible job. We came to him and we said, hey, look, we did this cover song, and we kind of want to pay tribute to the video, but I don't want to get horses and stuntmen to quarter <laughs> them, so what do you think we should do? <laughs> and he kind of like put it together, and then we, we kind of just bounced ideas off of each other until we got down to the day of shooting it all, and, and I think we were able to do it in what, 10 hours? Yeah. Okay. I thought it was like 14 minutes. <laughs> yeah, like so 10 hours, we got it all filmed, and, and Matt put it together. He made us look great. I think it looks amazing. With the history that like David had with uh, Borden and um, you know, they were such a big influence on all of us all together. And if we did a Faith No More song, we didn't want to just have it be, you know, just a standard cover. That's kind of why we wanted to do it more of a tribute to not just them, the song and the artist artisticness behind it, like even with the video. So that's what um, we were trying to stay true to all of that and, and, and give a nod in Faith No More's direction, at least try to anyway. Yeah, I was going to say, David, any uh, obviously I'm sure you have some experience with, with Mike and, and the guys in Faith No More over the years. Yes, in uh, early 2000-something when we were touring for um, issues, I was experiencing weakness and numbness in my right, uh, my right hand, causing it hard to hold a stick. I went to the specialist out by Anaheim Stadium, and they usually work on the on the football teams and baseball teams. And they said my first rib is kind of a weird story, but my first rib was a little bit longer than normal. So from raising my right hand up, doing like a pitcher's motion, which is thrusting your hand down to hit the drums, it was hitting the nerve on the rib, and it was causing my right hand to go numb and weak. So I went in and. Uh, did a, out, a quick quick surgery. They went in and cut off part of my first rib. Uh, Mike Borden came in and filled in for like six weeks for me. Wow. So that's, that's how I got to know him. And an amazing player, and I'm sure, uh, you know, <laughs> a great guy to have to be able to fill in for you. So just because you guys were on tour with them, so it was like, hey, Mike, you mind? We were on tour with them back then. Ah, so he, you just called him up. He was your pick. I just called him, yeah. He was my pick. Badass, badass. Well, he's kind of a big, big influence to you always. One of my biggest, like, yeah, absolutely. Tim Alexander and Mike Patton, my two biggest influences. Mike Borden. Mike Borden. <laughs> I'm sorry, Mike. <laughs> Mike Borden. <laughs> <laughs> You know, uh, speaking of everything going on with the band, it, certainly uh, kudos on the uh, new management in place, the legendary Andy Gould and my old friend Paul Gargano. And how did you guys get on each other's radars? I had been friends with Andy since the early 90s. Our managers were kind of intertwined. I just became friends with him from through our managers and did remain friends with him for all these years. So when we were looking for managers, I reached out to a few people. Andy uh, responded right away that he loved the music. And uh, him and Paul came down. We did like a showcase for him out in L.A. I mean, literally at the end of the showcase, they said, yes, we're, we're gonna, we want to manage you. So summed up pretty easily like that. Once they heard the songs live, just they wanted to make sure we sounded live as good as we could sound the record, which they thought we sounded better live. So I guess we must have played good that day. <laughs> well, yeah, you brought so Andy out of retirement. Yeah, yeah. Right? What's that? I said you pretty much brought Andy out of retirement. He was trying to like wind down his career, and and now he's 
got you guys. I mean, it's like one more, one more band, one more band. I think he still has a few bands. I don't think he's ready to quit yet. Good, Bye. good to see. And certainly, Paul has been going at it for a long time, and also manages Drowning Pool. And so now that that uh, management is placed, is a record deal next, or perhaps a booking agent? What's the next domino to fall for the band? Well, we don't really know because uh, of the of, of the COVID thing going on. We don't really know when we can ever tour. So I'm sure record labels are going to be hesitant unless they're coming up with a new model that doesn't include touring. But with our kind of music, the really the best way to get it out there is once it's digitally re- released is you've got to go on tour. So with no tours available right now, I really don't know the state of the actual music industry's desire to sign any bands or contracts. So I kind of have a feeling if we do a show here and there, it'll just be for that reason, just to get a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of exposure. But as far as the uh, deal goes, I don't really know what to expect until COVID is totally freed up, just because our type of music is pretty much dependent on touring. So then you would you would hold back. I was going to also talk about, you know, I know you guys had been working with Chris Collier and on, on an album, so that would also dictate the album coming out too, right? Obviously, what's going on with the COVID in the world and touring. Yeah, so we, we're, we're coming up with a new strategy. This is Rich, by the way. We're going to do a new release strategy behind everything, just especially during COVID. Every band out there is struggling to find content because they can't go on the road and and really market themselves that way. So, you know, a lot of bands are doing covers and whatnot. But our next year, we're just going to focus on writing more material. And as we write more material, we will release another single. You know, so we'll do the uh, every 60 to 90 days schedule. And hopefully by the time everything's done, we'll have a whole new record to release. And we do have an album's worth of music right now. Yeah. But we're not going to release all at once. Our new material is completely different than our old material because we've changed in, in all this time. So it's, it's kind of cool. It's kind of interesting to see where this is all going. Yeah, I mean, that's that's been really cool to see from a fan perspective is kind of you guys grow together as a band because you've kind of really jumped in and learned on the fly and off and running and doing shows and tours. And, you know, it, it's kind of cool to see the, the growth of the band as time goes on and you guys evolve and, and get to know each other and get tighter as a band. Intimately. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> kind of the whole reason why we we came out with and doing the cover and dropping it the way it is right now just with everything that's been going on with covid and lockdowns and unlockdowns and doing whatever it was just you know something that we could do and release and uh you know just just kind of have something that we had a you know good time doing and just having a, a, a you know and familiar with other people and just something to you know try to reach out and you know pay a little bit of an homage back to faith no more and maybe revisit you know some some diehard Faith No More fans that haven't heard some of this stuff in a while, like, you know, we were, and uh, with our little twist on it, and hopefully they enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen a lot of Faith No More covers recently. I don't think bands these days, you know, like new bands are listening to Faith No More. But I think the one thing here is, I can't speak for other musicians, but I know that every single time that I do a cover myself, I learn something new. And I think this whole exercise of doing the cover helped us change because we learned that unlike the bands of today you don't have to fill every space in a song with a note or a rhythm section you know the song breathes you know like old school music breathes compared to the music of today where you know the polyrhythms and everything are filling up every single gap in the music there's always something going on some something in the in the mix Exactly. And not that it's not good. Right. But you know what I mean? It's it's just a throwback. It's just a throwback to what it was back in the day. It taught us, hey, you know, we can lay back in certain spots. And it taught me, you know, using different voicings and everything like that. I learn from every single cover that I do. 
Yeah, I love. I was going to mention all those covers. I've been loving all the the quarantine covers that you've been doing, Rich. And man, that Deftones "Passenger" was rad. Getting you to do uh, Chino and Maynard on that one. But curious if if you had a favorite of the of the ones that you did outside of Faith No oh, More, man. obviously. Man, I don't know. That "Passenger" cover was hard. <laughs> uh, that was that was really hard to do. But I think my favorite one was "Cross Off." I don't know if you saw that one, the yeah. Spencer Bennington, Mark Morton one. Yeah. That one, I learned something new when I did that. I was like, holy crap, I need to use this technique in, in, uh, in bias when I, when I bring it back. But recently, I literally just uh, two days ago finished kind of a cover, a pseudo cover, pseudo original. I don't know if you know of a band called 12 Foot Ninja. Yep. Uh-huh. From Australia. So 12 Foot, yeah. So 12 Foot Ninja put out a instrumental track and they're like, hey, sing over this. But I was too busy to sing over it while they had this track out there for like some contest that they were doing. I told myself that I would do it when I had time. So I finally had time. So I, I recorded it just for fun. I'm going to release that. I'm just going to record it and then tag them and say, hey, look, I did your song. So it's kind of like a half cover, half original that I did with them. Awesome, man. I can't wait to hear that. And they, they are a great band, like one of those cool, like, man, they mix so many different sounds and flavors and throw them all into their own little stew. I really love their, what they do. Like no one, no one sounds like 12 foot ninja. To be honest, since we're on the subject, you know what I mean? Uh, the first time I ever heard 12 foot ninja, it, it just reminded me of a newer faith. No more <laughs> really uh, style. Yeah, I mean, it just you'll, if you ask them, if you ever do an interview with them, I would I would love that to be a question and just be like, was Faith No More ever an influence on you? Because it, to me, or Mr. Bungle or somebody, because that you know, I think I think that was a I just get that vibe on some of their parts that they have in their song, and they are all over the place. But yeah. it's just like you get some <laughs> some stuff, it's just like, oh, I haven't had this feeling since Faith No More. Those guys yeah. are really cool, though. I met them when they came out. To the states on their first tour with periphery they were really down to earth and amazing musicians so kudos to those guys i hope we get some new music from them in the new year hey speaking of music and being fans i want to get your guys opinion on something <laughs> me and my wife have gotten into this debate and i want to get your guys's opinion it's a this or a that and i'm sure each of you have an opinion be good good to hear each of your individual opinions okay we're all nine inch nails fans correct yeah. Yeah. yes of course. So the debate is really simple. It's album one versus album two. Pretty Hate Machine versus Downward Spiral. Got to pick Downward one. Spiral. Yep. Downward Spiral. Downward Spiral. Downward Spiral. Yeah, I know Broke and all that, but I'm saying between those two. So so in between Pretty Hate Machine and Downward Spiral, right? Yeah, between those two. I know Broke was literally between those two, but we're not talking about Broke. We're talking album one, Pretty Hate Machine versus album two, downward The Downward Spiral. This is Joe. I'm going to say Downward Spiral. Tell me why, Joe. I, that, that's my pick, my, too, but tell me why. There's a lot more groove in that album. <laughs> I think vibey-wise and with the electronics and everything that was going on with that album, not, not that Pretty Hate Machine's not a good album, I like that album, but I just think I got more vibes out of uh, Downward Spiral. And, and I, to be honest, I think I had a lot of sex to that album. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, this is Rich. So Downward Spiral, 100%, because I think Trent Reznor, he solidified into his, his style on that album. The production quality is so much higher. There's so much more polish. His lyrics and his hooks are just amazing. His layering is way better than it was originally. I could listen to that album all day, and I used to listen to it all day and night. Hell yeah. Definitely down with Spiral. 
Yeah, Tell me why. Downward Spiral for sure. Why? I, do, I think the songwriting, and uh, obviously you know that Nine Inch Nails, they do a lot of, uh, of sampling. And I think just the sound and the depth of the samples really took a notch up from the first record. They certainly had more toys to play with in, in 93 as opposed to 88 or 89 when you made the first one. I still think Broken's the best one they've ever done, the EP. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's What's your favorite track off of Broken? Let's see here. I'll play right now. This one. Last. Oh, yeah. That's a favorite song. Chris? Yo. What's your Nine Inch Nails pick? I, I think Downward Spiral. Same thing. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I can get that in depth with it, but I think that's a better, overall a better record. I actually had a it's funny story in one of my work trucks. I had the, the first record actually stuck in the CD player. It's still in there. So I, I think maybe I listened to that one too many times. <laughs> it's worn out. <laughs> I'm not going to even bother asking Mike, because I know Mike doesn't. Mike wasn't even born when either of those albums came out. I was, man. I was 92. No, I, I, he was like three. I never, um, I was more like seven. I never got uh, too much into the Nine Inch Nails, especially the earlier stuff. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to agree with uh, Chris on this one, first one. I appreciate, all the, I appreciate all the time, guys. One last question, David, if I could, if I could trouble you. I had uh, recently talked to uh, Michael Beinhorn, who you worked with on the uh, Untouchables album back in the day. And he had said that, that you guys had pitched him that you wanted to make your dark side of the moon with Untouchables. Do you remember that being the game plan going into that album? Uh, not that I'm aware of about pitching him a dark side of the moon concept. I know that he had produced some records that we thought really sounded good. That's why we, we picked him. And Untouchables, I think, was a really good sounding record, but... I don't remember any dark side of the moon talk with him. <laughs> he said seven months pre-production at a house in Arizona, like the longest pre-production he had ever done. And like the, certainly like one of the, at the time, the most technologically advanced record at that time too. Yeah. We all moved out to Arizona to Scottsdale and we rented three houses. One of them had a basement and we went in and uh, did all the pre-production and actually wrote the whole entire record out in, in uh, Scottsdale. Then we came back here and recorded it. I think we were out there for about six or seven months. Well, it wasn't because we were having a hard time writing. It was because all the bars and clubs and strip clubs were so much fun. We would, we would, we would, we would, we would, we would work for like two or three hours. We'd be like, oh, so-and-so was coming on sh- shift to the strip club. Let's get out of here. So we'd leave, and then we would stay up so late partying. We're supposed to start rehearsing by like 1 or 12, and we, everyone would get to like 3. And then again at 7, we're like, we're hungry. Let's go eat, and then let's go back to the strip club. So we probably could have done it in like four months. But. <laughs> and he also said that you guys kind of like recorded and then Jonathan did the vocals separately. He was kind of on a different schedule. Yeah. But that's not the first time we did that. We did that with uh, Issues too. Was that just out of you guys partying and him not or just him being more of a vampire in different hours? Or It was a different approach, one that I did not agree with. But Beinhorn convinced everyone to go for it, so I had to do it. I would have rather the whole entire record with John in the room with us, making up vocals at a time and then once... We had a song down and he had vocals down. Then we would have rehearsed it with the vocals. That's what we did on our first three records. And then rehearsed it over and over with the full vocals, full band. And then went in to record it. Because I used to follow a lot of John's kind of accents on his vocals. But on issues, Brendan O'Brien, he's the one who wanted us to write the music and and do John after. And I was outvoted because I didn't want to do that. So it just happened to be that way. It wasn't by my choice. Did you feel any, uh, speaking of that album, did you feel any magic when you got done with Here to Stay? Did it feel like, oh, yeah, that's the one? I don't know. It's kind of hard to say because now that you say Here to Stay, all that comes to my mind is the demo version when I'm playing electronic drums 
And I remember going, I hope this song comes out good. It certainly came out good. It was obviously good, though. I said it came out great, obviously, and certainly a massive song on that album. I'm just curious if there was any any thoughts other than that drum machine or just... I remember showing some people the demo version with the V drums and kind of raw. And I remember people looking at me like, really? This is your new song? <laughs> and then after it came out, I showed it to them and they went, oh, okay, I get it now. Bitchin', well, guys, I appreciate all the time. Dude, you rock. Thank you so much for checking out the entire podcast. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and follow me on the socials at MikeZ967. Follow me, I'll follow you back. Lastly, don't miss the show. Saturday nights at 11 p.m., Wired in the Empire on 96.7 KCAL Rocks in Southern California. Always streaming online at kcalfm.com. Adios.